John 17, verse 20 through 23 this morning. We are sadly moving on from John 17, 17, though we probably should not. I almost did another sanctification sermon. I decided to spare you. You're welcome. But there are a few truths more important and more in need of being recovered by the church today than that sanctification is in the truth. God's word is truth. Keep in mind, that's, that's what we are coming before right now. God's living and active word, the means through which he is present with his people, the means through which he preserves and encourages and nourishes his people, that word that does not return to him void. That's what we are coming to right now. And we've been seeing that the holy God is setting apart for himself a people, and he is all about making them into a holy people. Sanctification is the process by which he is doing that, and the word that we are considering right now is the means through which he is doing that. So how was your engagement with God through his living and active word this week? How was your meditation? We're going to keep talking about that. Though we are moving on in our text, we never move on from John 17, 17. And so we're going to keep coming back to this. The question that we're considering this morning is, what are some of the results? What are some of the effects of sanctification? God saves us as individuals, but he doesn't then leave us alone as individuals. He saves us as individuals, but then saves us into a community, a family, a body. Sanctification as well is both an individual and a corporate affair. And so what happens when God saves and sanctifies a whole community of people? What will be one of the chief characteristics of a holy by God's grace people? Unity. Unity is what we are talking about this morning. What is unity? That's actually a great question, and it's harder to answer than you might think. So I want to consider with you this morning the mystery of unity, hopefully convincing you of the necessity of unity and the beauty of unity. Remember, John 17 is Christ at prayer, his longest prayer, his last prayer. What would you pray for if you knew that you are moments away from great suffering and death. It seems likely that you would pray for important things, things that matter the most. Prayers reveal priorities. Prayers reveal the heart. What matters most? What is priority? What is Christ's heart here at the end? We are beginning today the final section of this three-part prayer. Part one, Christ prays for his own glory. Part two, Christ prays directly for his disciples and their sanctification, indirectly for us as well. And now in part three, Jesus turns to pray directly for us. Yeah, that could be a whole sermon right there. Christ prays for you. In John 17, 20, Christ prays specifically for you. And Jesus, who does all things well, does prayer well. The perfect God-man prays perfect prayers. The one who loved his own to the end, love is seeking the good of the loved. The one who sought the good of those he loved to the very end, thus prayed perfectly for that good. But unity? The perfect prayer, the perfect good seeker prays and seeks unity? 
for us at the end. That's his priority. Why? Why is unity apparently so important? Your hook this morning is simply that if Christ prays this for you in his final words, this must be extremely and eternally important. Christ wants unity for you and his church. Christ's will is unity for you and his church. Do you want and will unity? Do you understand its mystery and see its necessity and its beauty? That's our goal this morning, to try to understand what it is and to see how important and good it is. Let's start with God, always a good place to start. Point number one, we have to first see unity in God himself. And so we're going to consider that because that's emphasized in our text. Then point number two, we're going to consider our unity with God. And it's only then that we will be ready to understand point number three, unity with God's people, with one another. That's the goal this morning. So let me read the text for you. I'm just going to read John 17, verses 20 through 23. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you this day. Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Bow with me. Let's make sure we begin this time first with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. You are the infinite, transcendent, incomprehensible God that reveals himself to his people. Father, we would have no hope apart from your a kind and gracious and clear revelation. So, Father, help us to take seriously what we are doing now as we enter into your presence through your word. Father, we believe that your Holy Spirit works through your word to sanctify your people, to save those whom you have chosen to be your people. Father, to encourage and edify, uh, comfort your people. Father, all of these things, the, the many needs that are represented among the many people in this room today, we ask that you would minister and that you would work uh, through your word. Father, help us to better understand who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the beauty of who you are and of what you have done for us in Christ and of what we have here together as your people. Father, teach us, encourage us, comfort us with your word now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one is unity in God. Well, why start there? Well, it's because everything obviously starts there. Genesis 1.1, the most um, important and controversial verse in the Bible, the first and foundational verse in the beginning, God. John 1.1, the beginning of our book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So just from those two verses, the, the two key beginning verses, we learn that God is, before there was anything, there was God. 
before all the beginning and all the becoming, God was and is. He is God. He is creator. Everything else is creation and creature. There is one God, and then there is everything else. In the beginning, God created everything. And we also learn from John 1.1 that there is some sort of mysterious diversity in this one God. The word was both with God and the word was God. There is both withness and wasness. The word who takes on flesh and dwells among us, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is both with God and somehow God himself. We're talking about unity today, but to understand what that really is, we have to first start with Trinity. Why? Because Jesus roots our unity in the Trinity. Look at our text. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. So here we've come to a clear point of transition. These only are those 11 who are with him, his his disciples, the apostles. He's been praying directly for them in verses 6 through 19. But we've kept making the case that he's also praying indirectly for us. There's no way he's asking for the Father uh, to keep them from the evil one and not us. Or that that he would ask the Father to sanctify them in the truth and not us. So yes, he's been praying indirectly for us this whole time. But now here in verse 20, he turns to pray specifically and directly for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Every single one of us, through some long chain of progression, starts with the apostles and with their word that has been recorded and passed along and that was spoken uh, to us or that was read by us at some point in time through which we were saved. So he's praying for us. Verse 21, what's he praying for us? That they may all be one. And that will be point three. We got to get there if we're going to understand what this unity is. So look at what he says first, that they may all be one just as. That just as is hugely important. Kathos, it's an adverb. Adverbs modify. That that verb modifies the verb phrase, that they may all be one. Kathos, all be one, the word means like according to, or one dictionary definition I saw uh, says corresponding to fully. So What would the oneness for which Christ prays correspond to fully? That they may all be fully one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Look at the end of verse 22. That they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them and you in me. Three times. Convenient. Trinity. Three times, Jesus says in our passage, uh, three times he, he roots our oneness in God's oneness. That, that, that's what unity is, by the way. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about oneness. I didn't know this, or I never really even thought about it, but apparently the mathematical definition of unity is the number one. Okay, thank you, Oxford English Dictionary. But that makes sense, as this word unity comes from the Latin uh, unitus, which comes from uh, unis, which is just the Latin word for 
One. It's the number one. Point number one, unity. Unity is oneness. Unity is Christ's prayer for his church. And the foundation of the church's oneness is God's oneness. Which means that, paradoxically, the foundation of the church's unity is God's trinity. Why am I belaboring this point? Wouldn't it just be easier and quicker to not talk about the trinity here and get to the unity? Isn't the trinity just too tricky anyways? Do we really even understand it? Why are we taking time for the trinity? Is it really all that important? Well, first, we're talking about it because it's in our text. And second, it's because the trinity is profoundly important. It is foundationally important. It can't be a Christian without it important. Yet those who have gone before us understood this. Uh, listen to the Athanasian Creed. This is 1,500 years old. Uh, composed after the death of Athanasius. So it wasn't written by him, but it was very much influenced by the great champion of the Trinity and of Christ's deity. So a creed is just a confession of faith. Here's what we believe. Here's how this one begins. Whoever desires to be saved, me, yes, everyone, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Okay, so serious stuff here. What is this universal faith? Now this is the universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. They start their whole confession of faith and say no salvation, no knowing God, no life without this first and foundational thing. Anyone who desires to be saved must believe, must hold to the biblical faith, and the first foundational truth is that God is Trinity and that Trinity is in unity. I mean, come on, really? That's just like a really big and bold claim. Is that actually true? It has to be, yes. Almost everyone believes in God. Many people believe in Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. What is the truth that distinguishes the Christian faith from all others? It's the identity of God. The one truth, the God of the Bible, everything else stands and falls on this on him and he reveals himself in his word through which he sanctifies uh, to be triune as the God three in one this trinity as Michael Reeves says uh, that is the, the governing center of all Christian belief this is the truth that shapes and beautifies all other truths this is the first and foundational truth of our faith and it's the only truth that makes possible our salvation and our unity. And so three times in our text, Jesus emphasizes both the diversity and the unity in the Godhead. You, Father, are in me and I in you. Look back up at the end of verse 11. He's already done this in part two of the prayer. Look at verse 11. Repetition. This must be important. That they may be one even as we are one. Back in chapter 10, verse 30, in the middle of the, the Good Shepherd discourse, Psalm 23, Yahweh is the Good Shepherd. John 10, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. 
because John 10, 31, I and the Father are one. So you have two distinct persons there, and you have oneness. You have unity. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. A mystery? Of course. But big and beautiful things are always somewhat mysterious things. There is always something about them a little bit beyond us, just a little bit out of reach, a little bit more than words. And this is the biggest and most beautiful thing. We should not be surprised that God is not like us. We should not be surprised that there are things about the infinite, eternal God that are other and different than us. And so we'll never exhaust this truth, but we do need to be clear that we can understand it because God has revealed it to us in his word. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's the Trinity. Just read the Bible. It's it's there, and it's wonderful. This Jesus, this Christ who is our faith, Christ is Christianity. No Christ, as he's revealed in Scripture, no faith, no forgiveness, no hope. This Christ, who is both uh, fully and truly man and fully and truly God, keeps repeating to us his oneness with the Father. The best teacher who has ever lived keeps repeating to us this point. More, uh, 1038. He says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 1410. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Don't forget, that's chapter 14. It's all the same scene. Yes, I may have preached on that text nine months ago. But Jesus said it to them minutes ago. And here he's saying it to them again. This is important. The identity of God is the most important thing. And so Jesus wants you to see the perfect oneness of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly one in all that they are and all that they do. We must see the necessity of this. We must see the beauty of this. We must see the mystery of this. Do you know this? Did you know that there's actually, there are five great unities that are revealed in Scripture. Five great unities, and every single one of them, they are all of them, great mysteries and great beauties. You know, I think some of the best things are the most mysterious things. So that's the first great unity, is, is, is unity within God himself, the Godhead. Do you know what could actually be argued as the first great unity that's fully revealed in Scripture? What's the first great unity revealed in Scripture? It's marriage. Yes, thank you. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, the two, shall become one flesh. Now there is a blessed and beautiful mystery, and it's a unity, literally It's a unity. We've been talking a lot in Deuteronomy about why sexual immorality is such a big deal, why adultery is the metaphor of choice for idolatry. Why is sexual immorality so bad? 
Well, it's because marriage and sex are so good. In God's glorious and good design, he created marriage to be the most intimate of unions, two becoming one. And he gave the gift of sex to be the powerful bonding agent to unite the two into one, uh, completely, body and soul. So it's this bonding, uniting power of sex that makes it so good and life-giving within the good design of covenant commitment and also that makes it so bad and death-dealing in any other context. Because this thing is for the purpose of uniting two, a man and a woman, uh, covenantally into one for life. Use it otherwise at great cost and harm to your soul. But the point here is that here's this, this, this second other great unity. It's one of the best things and it's one of the most mysterious things. How can two become one? It's there. It's, it's, it's scripture. It's mysterious, but it's true and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. So that's the two first great unities, God and the one flesh marriage relationship. But what is that wonderful mystery that is marriage? What's it ultimately about? Well, let's finally get to point number two. Let's start talking about unity with God. But first, we start with Ephesians 5.32 that tells us what this second great mystery is actually and ultimately about. It's about the third great unity. Paul tells us that this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what is the relationship of Christ and the church that is pictured by marriage? It's a relationship of unity. Go back to our text. Look at verse 21. Again, we're trying to be clear on what this unity is because people have done historically some crazy things with John 17 and then the unity that Jesus is praying for here. Um, so we've got to understand what it is. This is why we're trying to root it in God. Jesus prays in 21 that we may be one as we've seen just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Catch this in part. That they also may be in us. And then in verse 23, he says, I in them. Now here is a great and beautiful mystery. And it's again, it's a great emphasis of Christ this final night with his disciples. He has taught a lot about this in chapters 14 through 16. There, there really is, by the way, no richer and sweeter section of scripture than the upper room discourse in the prayer of John 13 through 17. Like, I'm actually sad that it's drawing, uh, uh, we're drawing close to its end. It's like when you finish a great, you finish the Lord of the Rings, you're like, well, what, what else is there? What's the point? It's, it's, it's all over. It's done. Right? You finish some great series, and well, what do we do now? That's what it feels like right now for me as we're getting close to the end of this. So yeah, let me just commend to you a regular return to this most precious left passages. We only have a few weeks left in it, and I'll, I'll miss it. But I digress. Jesus has talked and uh, taught much on this union this, this last night. Back in 1418, he has said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? Well, we argue that it's verse 17. The helper, the spirit of truth, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. 1423, Jesus has said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him 
and we will make our home with him. What a verse that is. And what a truth. And we're starting to see how God's truth can sanctify, can, can transform us, can make us both holy and happy. What if we believed by grace through the indwelling Holy Spirit that God himself comes to us and makes his home with us? What are we talking about here? We're talking about the most blessed of truths, the doctrine of our glorious union with Christ. Unity, union, one with God. We are in Christ. What in the world could that really mean? Metaphors to the rescue. Jesus taught about this in John 15. John 15, verse 5. He has said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what we're talking about here, this unity, it's something organic, it's something intimate, something personal. It's a, it's a connectedness and a relatedness of complete and utter dependence. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with him, everything. In him, union with Christ, it's, it's everything. All that we get and gain, all the blessings and benefits of the Christian life are bound up and are found in our union with Christ. This is what God is doing. He is making us one with himself. I don't know about you, but for, for so long, I understood the point of salvation to be almost entirely the, the forgiveness of sins. And let's be clear, praise God for the forgiveness of sins. I was a wretched sinner. Praise God that he pointedly and painfully opened my eyes to that truth. Let me see and feel my wretchedness. Let me utterly despair of any hope I had to be right and good. And so when he graciously granted me new life, a, a new heart, and I began to understand all that that included, and I began to understand 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, such joy. There. Praise God for the free forgiveness of sins. Free to us, costly to him. It's because of the awareness of my sin and what it deserved and what it required and cost Christ to deal with them that Psalm 103.10 is my favorite verse. He does not deal with us according to our sins. You have many and great sins. And they are terrible. And they separate you from God. And they deserve an eternity of incomprehensible judgment and wrath and suffering. We can't even begin to grasp it. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's everything. Memorize that. Meditate on that truth. That is a truth that sanctifies. I am so thankful for the forgiveness of sins, but, but as glorious and good as that is, it took a long time for me to understand that the point of salvation is not forgiveness. The end of salvation is not forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is but a means, a glorious means, a necessary means. But it is but a means to the end. Salvation is not fundamentally about forgiveness, but fellowship. The opening verses of 1 John, the verses right before 
the promise of God to faithfully forgive the sins of his people. What's this all about? Why does John write? Why are you listening to this sermon? Why are we here? What are we for and saved for? 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that, John loves purpose statements, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's the end and the purpose and the goal of salvation, fellowship with God himself. This is why God creates us. This is why God redeems us. We were made for him to find our life and our joy and our purpose and our identity in relationship with him, in him, one with him. We wrecked and rejected that with our sin, the sin that separates. God graciously began the work of saving us, not just to forgive us, but forgives us to bring us into fellowship with him. But to be in fellowship with the holy God of life, that sin and death had to be dealt with. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who lives and dies and rises again in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, for the purpose of restoring us to fellowship with God. Have you repented of your sins and believed in him? It all happens in the context of union with Christ. Unity is a great mystery. It's one of the great mysteries. We've seen it in God himself. We've seen it in the union of a man and a woman. We see it here in Christ. But it's a mystery that is a reality. It's a mystery that is revealed and it's a truth in which you can find much comfort. Paul never calls us Christians. He calls us saints. He refers to us as those who are in Christ. Our identity, uh, the definition of a believer is one who is one with Christ. What is your hope? Where are you seeking glory? Colossians 1.27 To the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Remember, rehearse, realize the unity that you have with God himself by his grace. We've been talking a lot about identity. You are always thinking, feeling, and acting out of some assumed identity, whether consciously or subconsciously. You have some sense of who you are and what you are for. Think, feel, and act always out of this identity. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. Christ lives in you. Your entire life 
Uh, you live now by faith in the Son of God who loves you and who is with you and in you as you are in Him. How can you begin to apply the unity you have with God to your day-to-day life? How would you view and respond to those difficult and disappointing circumstances if you truly believed that you were one with God, that you are literally, truly, spiritually in Christ, that the God of perfect peace, the God of full joy and pleasure forevermore was with you and in you always. This is what God is doing. In Christ, you are one with God himself. You have fellowship and union with him. Point number three. Finally, here's the point of the text. Here's what Christ prays for. He prays for unity with God's people. This is the fifth and final great unity revealed in Scripture. It's our our unity uh, one with another. But first, pause. If you've been paying close attention and taking detailed notes, which I'm sure that you have, you'll, you'll notice that I skipped a unity. What's the fourth great unity that is revealed in Scripture? Well, it was implied in all that we just did. It's the incarnation. It's, it's Christ himself. Yeah, there's, there's nothing more mysterious and more necessary and beautiful than the incarnation of Christ. We've said that identity is everything. The identity of, of God is everything. Everyone worships some God of some sort. The only question is, what God? Who is he? And we've seen that the one true God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Great mystery, but a revealed mystery, understandable mystery. Well, so it is with the identity of Christ. The incarnation is the most mysterious and most important and most amazing thing that has ever happened. Many religions have some sort of concept of God as creator. We can kind of wrap our minds around that. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. There must be a first cause. There must be an uncaused cause. There must be a creator God. But this, the incarnation, that the creator God entered into that very creation, And that he did so by taking on the very nature of the creatures that had rejected their creator to rescue and redeem those rebellious creatures. There is nothing like that anywhere else in all of the world and all of the philosophies and all of the religions. There is no one like this Christ. And both his person and his work are beautifully beyond us. Our statement of faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2 on Christ the mediator, it says this. Listen, just, just, this, is, this is the Christ that you claim to love more than life. Listen to this description of him. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature, this person is truly God and truly man, 
yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. So that is the great unity that is the heart of our faith. We have God over here in his holiness and his transcendence, and we have us over here in our littleness and our sinfulness, and we cannot bridge that gap. Nothing that we can do can bridge that gap. But God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, two natures coming together, but not two persons. Two natures, not mixed or blended, distinct, but inseparably joined together in one person. What a unity. What a mystery. I I can't wrap my brain around all uh, that that is and and says, but God's word is clear. What I'm trying to say, do you see how unity is at the very center of reality? Unity of God, creator, unity of Christ, Redeemer, unity is at the heart of all of it. And there's this this wonderful mystery and necessity and and beauty of this unity. But we're supposed to be talking about our unity, one with another. Look at the text. I ask that they may all be one. So why have we then spent so much time talking about all this other oneness, God's oneness and Christ's oneness? It's because it is that unity that determines and defines the unity that Christ prays for us. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That means that the unity that he is praying for us is analogous to the unity uh, in God. It is an intimate, personal, organic, spiritual oneness. Now, we don't need to take a lot of time on this because this isn't that big of a thing now. But this was the passage of the ecumenical church movement that was really big in the 20th century. It's kind of lost steam. Some of you probably remember it. Some of you probably have never even heard of it. But it was this idea that basically what we really need is one church. What Jesus is praying for is is we need one external organizational unity. We could just get rid of all the denominations and all the differences and all come together. If Protestants and Catholics could just come together, if Baptists and Presbyterians would just come together and be one, then we could have unity. We just want to be clear. That's not at all what Christ is praying for here. And that's not at all what biblical unity is. Jesus gets to determine and define what this unity is, and he does define it. He has defined it. And we've already spent weeks on it. It's John 17, 17, because he has just said, sanctify them in the truth. And so true unity is truth unity. The context of Christ's prayer is all that he has been teaching them. In 20, he prays for those who believe into Christ through the disciples' word. I originally had a fourth point. If you're using the kids bulletin, there's a fourth point, And then I panicked. I don't have time for the fourth point, so I had to take it out. It was unity through God's word. But the word is is the foundation of all of this. Verse 14, he has said, I have given them your word. Verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. What are these words primarily about? They're about his work. The truth is the revelation of the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. Remember what he prayed in verse 4. I have glorified you, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me. 
What work? Verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What is eternal life? Verse 3, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know the truth that saves and sanctifies. We've been emphasizing the oneness of the essence of the Father and the Son. But flowing out of their unity in essence is also their unity in mission and purpose. Jesus said in 5.19, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Yeah, what are the Father and the Son doing? John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The point is, is that there is a truth and there is a purpose to the unity of the Father and the Son. And as our unity is like theirs, there is a truth and a purpose to the unity for which Christ prays for here. And so the point is that we, we, we cannot have unity with anyone that claims the name of Christ, but that is not about this work, that is not about him as he is revealed in Scripture, that is not about his work of glorifying God the Father through the salvation of sinners, through his substitutionary life and death in their place. He's not praying for some surfacy, organizational, external unity. It's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the unity that all who are his have by nature of knowing that truth and being saved and having his very life in them. Just as all the many branches connected to the one vine have the same life flowing through them, so all those who are truly in Christ by grace uh, through his finished work have the same life flowing through them. We, we have the very life of God himself. Remember, that's what true religion is. It's the very life of God in the soul of man. And that one same life in God's people mysteriously but truly and beautifully unites those people together and makes them mysteriously but truly and beautifully one. Again, no mere external organizational um, surfacey unity. And Christ is not praying here for something that we have to create. He is praying here for something that we have in Christ. We have this organic and spiritual oneness with other saints by nature of us all being in the one same Christ and the one same Christ being in us all. We don't create this. We learn to realize it and live it out. And when we do that, when we actually begin to actualize and experience the unity that we do have in Christ with one another, there's nothing like it. There's nothing better just like all the wonderful unities and how blessed and great uh, God is himself and the person of Christ and the intimacy and the, the beauty of marriage, here we have a unity like that. There's nothing better. Consider a few passages. Let me just give you a little bit of Ephesians uh, for a second. Ephesians is coming. We've got to do Ephesians soon. Um, so be thinking about that. Ephesians 2. Let me read this for you. We're going to come back and talk more about the specifics of unity, so, so don't worry. But I want to see how important this is. Ephesians 2, 13, 9, 7, 7. Ephesians 2, 13. Pay attention to the ones. 
This is first about Jew and Gentile, but it applies broadly as well. 2.13, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, there's the union. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One, 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 one. There who we are. There's our corporate identity as the church. A dwelling place for God himself by the Spirit together corporately. We possess this unity in Christ. How should this demonstrate itself? Well, we're already there, so flip to Ephesians 4. Let's just look at this. Ephesians 4. Again, Paul must think this is important. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? There, there, there is a manner of life that is worthy of the grace of God and the life of Christ in us. We think grace means none of this other stuff matters. No, grace means all this stuff matters so much more. There is a manner of life worthy. Verse 2, what is that manner of life going to be like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You think I'm obnoxiously repetitive. There's the one, 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 one. There's the unity. There's the manner of life worthy of our calling in Christ. It is a humble, gentle, and patient manner, bearing with one another in love, doing whatever we can to pursue and maintain the unity of the spirit that we do have in Christ. That's an important difference. We're not creating this. We're not building this. We have it. We're maintaining it. We're learning to live it out. And so that's your application. First, realize that you do have this unity with any and all who are in Christ. You have mysterious but real internal living spiritual unity with all believers, with the church universal. But... The experience and the expression of that unity is going to be in one local body of fellow believers, united together, committed together in the covenant of church membership. That's where this is primarily lived out. So second application, realize that you have this unity with all the saints, but then practically 
pursue and maintain that unity with the brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ you have bound yourself to in church membership. This is a different thing. I have a wonderful, mysterious, spiritual unity with Pastor Ed and Pastor Keith and Pastor Caleb and Pastor Harry, men that I love and, and care about. I don't have the same responsibility towards them that I have towards you. I don't have quite the same connectedness because there is something unique and specific about the universal expression of this oneness specifically in one local body of believers. When the New Testament talks about the church, it almost exclusively talks about it as the the local body of believers. So yes, we have this wonderful, mysterious unity, but here's where we see it fleshed out. Here's where we put meat on the bones. Here's where we pursue that unity together. And so if you haven't covenantally committed yourself to a specific body of believers, then we need to talk. Church membership is the expression of this unity, and it is a great mystery, necessity, and beauty. Join a local church. And then so how, once we have done that, once we are united together in the covenant of church membership, how do we put flesh on this? How do we live it out? In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, Paul says this. And just notice, he talks about this so much, I couldn't help it. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Talking about the spiritual gifts there, at the end of the chapter, Paul says, he goes on, tells us to desire the higher gifts, and then says, I will still show you a more excellent way. Which is what? It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's love in all its beautiful and glorious and mysterious and convicting fullness. It's love in its patience and kindness. It's not insisting on its own wayness. It's not being irritable. The unity that we have with one another results and manifests itself in love for one another. Back to John 17, end of verse 23, and we'll close with this. Don't worry, we'll do one more unity sermon. I know you're nervous. We'll do another one. 1723, into the verse. It's a great unity. We've hardly begun to consider this. I have over the top emphasized the importance of the unity in God. Have I yet clearly communicated why that's so important and so good? Why don't we spend like two-thirds of our time on, on God and his unity? Here's hopefully the payoff, hopefully. Look at the end of verse 23. Our unity with one another is in part that the world may know that you sent me. We'll come to that next time. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's it right there. That's the point. It's emphasized in 24 and 26 as well, so we'll get to consider this again. But Carson says in verse 23 that the thought is breathtakingly extravagant. I love that. I love big, grand, hyperbolic overstatements. But to say that the Father loving us, even as he loved the Son, uh, to say that that's breathtakingly extravagant is in no way hyperbolic or overstatement. Because this is everything. This is almost unbelievable. Did we not have such a clear revelation of the person of God contained 
in these scriptures. The God of perfect love, the God of perfect unity within diversity. Father, perfectly loving and enjoying and delighting in the Son for the whole of eternity. Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, God speaking, in whom my soul delights. Just try and imagine that. The perfect God who is pleased with the most pleasing things is most pleased in his son, his beloved son. And the perfect God who must love perfectly, perfectly loves his beloved son. The perfect soul of the perfect God delights perfectly and eternally in the son. And Jesus says that the father loves you even as the father loves him again i want to qualify it i don't like i'm hesitant to even say it were it not just what the verse says even as perfectly gladly you just try and imagine that it's hard to do 1627 we just saw this again jesus keeps emphasizing this the father that, that perfect transcendent god of all glory the father himself loves you. We talked about meditation last week. Think deeply and continually on the things of God, the glorious sanctifying truths of God. Church, think deeply on this, the love of God for you, like the very love of the Father for his Son, perfect, glad, unfailing love. Meditate on that. Spurgeon, think more than you have on divine loving kindness. I mean, trust that if you find your soul flagging or your joy flagging, trust that it's because you are not thinking enough on divine loving kindness. Think more than you have on the eternal love of God for you, like just as his perfect love for his son. Church, that's how we will maintain and pursue the unity that we have in Christ. It's as we grow more and more glad in God's love for us, as our focus is then shifted away from self and to God and his life and his joy-giving love, it will also then be shifted away from self to God's people and that same life and joy that we all intimately share together in Christ. Our unity with one another is rooted in our unity with Christ which is rooted in God's unity in himself. It is a blessed mystery, necessity, and beauty. It is what Christ prays and wants for you and for Woodside. Church, let's want that for Woodside as well. How about we close now and let's pray and ask for that very thing here for Woodside. Pray with me. Father, as we have now considered Christ's prayer for us. We want to pray more and more according to your will. We want to pray more and more like Christ, uh, the perfect God-man prays. And so we ask, Father, that you would uh, make us one. Father, we thank you for the oneness with one another and with all the saints that we do have by nature of the gracious work of Christ, by the wonderful truth and mystery of our union with Christ. 
Father, may we seek to more and more understand that which is of most importance. May we seek to more and more study and understand and think of ourselves in light of our oneness with Christ. And as we understand your love for us, as we understand that union, Father, I pray that our love for you would grow and grow and overflow into a love for your people, particularly in a love for the people here that you have uh, brought uh, together in your sovereign will, specifically each and every one of the 60-some members at Woodside Community Church. Father, you have ordained to be a member of this church at this time. And Father, that is a great privilege. That is a wonderful and beautiful thing. So Father, continue to grow, protect the unity of Woodside Community Church. May it be a unity that is always rooted in you and in your truth. And Father, as we consider next time, may it be a unity that is always evident to the watching world, a compelling and and drawing people uh, to Jesus, uh, the Christ, who is our life and our joy. Father, help us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.